Our New Testament reading is from Luke 17, 20 through 37. And that can be found on page 62 in the New Testament of your Pew Bibles. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who was in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Thank you, Lorraine, for reading so clearly and helpfully for us. Let's bow our heads and ask for God's help now then as we open his word this morning together. Father, we pray that today you'd help us to understand your word, that your spirit would open our eyes, and our, our prayer is that we would so see the kingdom of the Lord Jesus that our hearts and minds and lives and entire orientation would be driven by and centered in on this great day. And we ask it because we love the Lord Jesus, because he loves us, and we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. It was Woody Allen who once famously said, we are all interested in the future because that's where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And he's right, which is why the future is both exciting for us and frightening to us. It simultaneously fills us with hope and dread. The future is a place we long for, yet fear. And that's why we spend so much time preparing for the future, seeking to risk-proof it, 
the student studies for their exam. The expectant parent does everything to get the nursery ready. The, the worker puts money into the retirement fund. One in four Americans check their star signs. 9% of Americans think the clairvoyance can help. But what will our eternal future hold? Can we be certain what will happen in eternity? Because our problem is that we live inside the box in a closed universe. What we need is a clear word from outside the box. We need a clear word about the future from God. If only God would tell us what is going to happen in the future, then we would be prepared, we would be ready, we would be enabled to be wise in this life. And there is a clear word. This is the great good news of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus gives us in the now the future that will be. And He has authority to tell us for he is the creator and therefore will be the judge. He had the first word, he will have the last. And therefore this morning what we're going to do is to stop our sermon series from the Sermon on the Mount that we've finished. And we're going to move over these next two weeks from expository preaching into doctrinal preaching just for two weeks. As we think together about the two great comings of our gods, the first, at Christmas, the second at the end of the world. And we're going to see over these two weeks that they are connected as we think together about the future coming of Christ. Let's pick up our sheets then as we think about this uh, together. But throughout the New Testament, a range of words are used about the end. It's called the day of the Lord's, the last day, the day of the Son of Man, the day of Christ. The great day of God, the day, the day of judgment, and the day of wrath. And can I just say that this idea, this thinking about the end, is not the domain of cranks and loonies. It is to be the doctrine for all the people of God. In fact, this is the most repeated doctrine in the whole of Scripture. There are over 250 clear references to the return of God at the end of the world. So much so, so central is it that in the early church, believers demonstrated a very clear anticipation that the return of Jesus would come quickly. Whenever they met for services, whenever they met for Bible studies or bumped into one another in the store, they would say to each other, Maranatha, a uh, Aramaic expression that meant Come, Lord Jesus, He is coming. Yet there is a crisis in the modern Western church. We are so caught up in the now that this doctrine is far from central, if not fully abandoned. The Church of England, my home denomination, recently said in a report, quote, it is no longer possible to believe in a literal second coming of Jesus at the end of the age. I don't know why. It is the most central and repeated doctrine in Scripture. So this is the season of Advents. And that word Advent comes from a Latin word adventus, which means arrival or coming. 
And as I say, over these next two Sundays, we're going to be looking at the two great arrivals, the two great comings of Jesus, and they are connected because He will come in glory and majesty as judge, the great coming of Jesus. And yet, the miracle of the gospel is that He has come in humility at Christmas. And the purpose of His first coming in all humility at Christmas is to prepare us for the final day of judgments when He will come in His majestic glory. Before we turn to our sheets then, let me just say that there are three Greek New Testament words that are used of the return of Jesus at the end of the age. The first one is a Greek word, parousia, which literally means presence or arrival. And it was a word that was used of the arrival of Roman generals in all of their glory at the end of the victory of the war against the Germanic hordes. They would process and parade into Rome in a, in a parousia of glory, declaring their victory. The second word is epiphania. It means to appear, from which we get our word epiphany. It was used of the arrival of the king or of a dignitary before his subjects. And the third Greek word is apocalypsis, which really means unveiling, a word that really belongs on Broadway. So you go to see Les Mis or Mary Poppins, and you arrive in the theater and you sit there and you wait. You're quite early and it's dark. And then all of a sudden, the music from the pit starts to play as the orchestra plays. And what happens is extraordinary. As the curtains open and the lights go on and you see what's behind the curtain. Can I just say, it's always been there but it has been hidden from your eyes. It is an apocalypsis as the curtains open and as you're transported into 1789 France, Les Mis, or Cherry Tree Lane for Mary Poppins. You are moved into a reality that was hidden as now you see it in all of its glory, and that's what's going to happen on the day when Jesus arrives. Putting these three words together, the picture is of a climactic inbreaking of God into His world, establishing a new world order marked by the physical resurrection as we meet Jesus Christ in all of His majestic glory, hidden now, but seen at the end of the age. Well, let's pick up our notes then as we think together about these three key Advent questions. What will the return of Jesus be like? Second, how should we prepare? And then third, what will the return of Jesus achieve? Our third point will be the briefest. What will the return of Jesus be like? And back in Luke 17, we find the answer. Jesus has been teaching His disciples all about the kingdom, the time when His rule will break into the world, ushering in the perfect new creation. And in Luke 17, Jesus has been teaching, and in verse 20, the Pharisees table their questions. They've got their charts out, their chronological calendars, and they've got their pins, and they're trying to plot it and ask, so when, when will this be? When will the kingdom come? And the question is tragic, because they're missing the fundamental reality they stand there and say, when will the kingdom come? Yet they miss the fundamental reality that it is now, for the king has come. 
They ask, when will it happen? When will the king come? But they are talking to the king who has already come. For here is Jesus, the long-awaited Christ. For hundreds of years they have waited, and now Messiah is here. And so Jesus answers, don't say, look, here it is, or don't say, there it is. For behold, says Jesus, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It really is in their midst, because in his perfect life and sacrificial death and mighty resurrection and glorious ascension, the kingdom of God is going to be established. And as he speaks this in Luke 17, he's on the road to the cross. All kingly rule ends in defeat and death. Think of Richard III at the a battle of Bosworth in 1485, or Harold I at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. All kingly rule ends in defeat and death, but Jesus' kingly rule begins in his defeat and death. For as he goes to the cross of Calvary, and as he hangs in degradation and shame, as he pays the penalty for our guilt, as he defeats death and Satan, the doors to the kingdom of God are flung open far and wide so that sinners like us, through the forgiveness of his blood, may flood in and enter into the new age of grace and mercy and love and triumph. Don't go around saying, where is the kingdom of God, you fools, Jesus is saying. Here is the kingdom of God's, for I am the king from God's, and the kingdom is at hand. And yet, the kingdom is now and not yet. It's begun, it's been established at Calvary, but it's not yet consummated. So what will the full, consummated, final kingdom be like? Jesus says, it will come suddenly, verse 24. A slight change to our notes, if you don't mind. Our first point is sudden, verse 24. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other, so the Son of Man will be in His day. Now that phrase, the Son of Man, is the most exalted title in the universe, and it's borrowed from Daniel chapter 7 which Dana read for us. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me, says Daniel, was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence and was given authority and glory and sovereign power as all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." It is an extraordinary picture in Daniel 7 of a human figure who is divine, a human king who approaches the very presence of God and to whom is given all authority. This human divine king is given all rule over all people in all places and for all time. So wherever you spin your globe and stop it, you close your eyes, spin the globe, and stop it. Wherever you put your map, pin, in, there isn't an inch of ground over which this king 
doesn't say mine. Our problem, though, is we don't see his majestic rule. But one day Jesus says you will, and it will appear like lightning. For lightning in the Old Testament symbolizes the mighty presence of God's For at Mount Sinai, as the mountain shook, lightning appeared over the mountain, symbolizing the presence of God. And in Psalm 144 uh, and in Psalm, uh, Psalm 18, lightning stands as the picture of the execution of judgments from God. And the point is that this judgment will be like a lightning strike in its speed. It will be a split second thing. The arrival of Jesus as king will not be a long, drawn-out process like the election of a president's or the passing of a bill in the house going on for months or years. It will be like a lightning flash. With lightning speed, Jesus will be revealed to be the king and judge he is. Really, our world asks... Will it really be like that? And Jesus' answer is yes, verse 26, because it always is like that. As he takes us to two episodes in the Old Testament where judgment came with lightning speed, the two great stories of judgments from the time of Noah and the time of Lot's, as we see the flood from heaven and the fire from heaven. As it was in the time of Noah, so it will be at the time of the Son of Man, as people, verse 27, were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, same as at the time of Lot, as people were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building, but on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all, just the same, verse 30, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And the thing about these activities, buying and eating and drinking and marrying, is not that they're wicked. They're not wicked at all. They're just part of normal life. It's the stuff that we do all of the time. So what Jesus is teaching is that when He returns, normal life will be in full swing. People will be shopping at Macy's and drinking at Starbucks and eating at Chick-fil-A, relaxing at the movie theater and getting married in church and honeymooning in Bermuda. And there will be no air raid siren or government announcements or presidential address or coverage on CNN or chatter on Twitter. Normal life will be in full swing, and then with lightning speed, judgments from heaven will come. And the word that Jesus uses of the flood is the Greek word cataclysmos. As people were eating and drinking and marrying and getting married, cataclysmos, cataclysmic judgments came down from heaven. Well, that was a one-off, the flood. That was a one-off. But it wasn't, says Jesus, because it was like this too in the days of Lot's Genesis 19. Destruction came, we know, from Genesis 19 in the morning. But the day before seemed very normal for the people of Sodom. 
They did the school run and then the commute to work and got home and cooked the evening meal. And then judgment came. And in the New Testament, two main pictures are used of judgment, the thief in the nights and the woman in labor. I was talking to somebody recently, Carl, and he and his wife, Alex, spoke of how one evening robbers just broke into their house. It wasn't expected. They didn't know they were coming. They were terrified by it. It was just so unexpected and sudden. The thief in the nights. And it's the same with the woman in labor. Nothing terrifies the young husband more than this. You know it's coming, especially with the first baby, but you don't quite know when the waters will break and the baby will start coming. And I know of somebody who was trying to get his wife to the hospital and ended up delivering the baby on the kitchen floor. The point is it will be a dramatic shock. The lights will just go on. Jesus will return when no one expects it. So are you expecting Jesus to return? Are you expecting Jesus to return this month? Because He might. Are you expecting Jesus to return this week? Because He might. Are you expecting Him potentially to return today? Because He may well. He may well return before the end of this service. It will come when people expect it least. And that day, says Jesus, verse 34, will be divisive, our second point. I tell you, on that night, there will be two people in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding in the same place, one taken, the other left. Two men in the field, verse 36, one taken and the other left. So when I was at school, it was always the same in math. We'd sit in class and in would walk the teacher in his gown. And then he would chalk up the algebra on the board. And then he would turn to us and say, get on with the algebra and I expect it to be done by the time I come back. And then he would leave to go back to the common room for another cup of coffee and to watch the sport with his friends and do the crossword. The problem was, none of us quite knew when he would arrive, which left us with a dilemma. What we ought to be doing was math. What we wanted to be doing was playing indoor soccer. And the problem was, he would always arrive when you least expected it. And he wasn't called Dr. Dread without reason. His arrival would always split the class into two groups. Those who were ready because they were doing the math and had it done, and the rest of us who actually had been wasting the time because we hadn't understood what would happen as the doors flung open and he arrived. Right through humanity runs a fault line, much like the San Andreas fault. It's not visible to the naked eye, but it's there. Humanity is split into two groups, so is this church sanctuary today. Those who are forgiven, who have received the grace and mercy and beauty and love of Christ, and those who have not. And the point about this fault line is invisible now. It will be visible on the day when Jesus ultimately returns.
as it's exposed. And the point is that membership of a community of faith is irrelevant if I don't have that faith. It doesn't matter if I'm from a Christian home or that I'm married to a Christian spouse. It doesn't matter if I have Christian parents or go to a Christian school. All that matters on the day when Jesus returns is do I know Christ, as we thought about last week, and does He know me through the salvation He has secured at the cross? Jesus says, one will be taken from the marital bed and the other left. One will be taken from the business in the field and the other left. One in the office, the other left. Taken to the kingdom or left for final judgments. Our third thing to notice is that the judgments will be inescapable. In response to this teaching, the disciples say, where, Lord? It's a great question and perfectly understandable. Where will this judgment fall? Where in the world is it going to fall? They're thinking temporally, which nation or whereabouts? And in asking it, they're trying to make sure they're not there when the lightning comes and Jesus returns in final judgment. They want to make sure they're in a place of safety. So, where, Lord, is the question? Where will this cataclysmic judgment fall? And Jesus' answer is both cryptic and intriguing and gory. Wherever the body is, there the vultures will be gathered he says. So, our family love Westerns, in particular, anything by John Wayne. And have you noticed in a Western how when the baddie dies, the vultures always circle over the baddie's body? Have you noticed that in a Western? But actually, in reality, vultures are not that picky. Whether it's a goodie who's died or a baddie, the vultures will gather. It's just the way it is in nature. Wherever there is a dead body, the vultures will gather. And it's like that with judgments. Wherever there is an unforgiven sinner, wherever that person lives, there the judgment of God will follow. It is unavoidable. For judgment will not be like the dentist where I don't really want to go so I can cancel it or like a meeting with my tax appointment or my tax accountants. I'll just put it off. Jesus says when judgment comes, it will be unavoidable. How then, question two, do we prepare for this judgment? And Jesus gives us the answer in Luke 17. Our second point, how do we prepare? Jesus says in that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not go down to take them away. And likewise, if you're in the field, don't turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and if you lose your life, you will preserve it. As the flood came in Noah's day, it was impossible to think about taking your stuff with you. It is the same for us. For being ready for Jesus means not being concerned 
about the material things of this life, but the eternal things of the next. The point is that the heart must not be on what is in the house, but what is in heaven. The issue is one of attachment, of loyalty, of orientation or direction. The question is, which way are we facing? Are we looking back to the sinful world? Or is our orientation forwards to the coming glory of Christ? It is A or B, black or white, one or the other. Are we looking back to the world of sin or forward to the coming of glory? And this terrifying warning of Lot's wife is so sobering. She was in the community of faith as her husband led her out, as the warning of the angel was to leave quickly. And she did begin to leave for the new world and the new future, but just glanced back. What's wrong with the glance? It is that it said everything, that glance. For ultimately, her real home, her real heart, her real loyalty, her real attachments was not to God and His Word and the coming of His kingdom, but to the sinful life of Sodom and Gomorrah where she had made her home. J.C. Ryle puts it so perfectly, the world was in her heart because her heart was in the world. So we sit loose to the world in the light of Advent. We travel light in the light of Advent. We avoid becoming attached to this world because of Advent. We sit, fit our eyes on the city above and we live as exiles and strangers here. Our last question is what will the return of Jesus achieve. And I'd love you to turn with me then to our second text this morning, which is 2 Peter, or 2 Peter 3, verse 8 to 14. Please turn there with me now, 2 Peter 3, verse 8 to 14. As Peter, who would have been listening to Jesus in Luke 17, now tells us precisely what will happen, and it's great news on this great and terrifying day of Jesus' return. For three things will happen on this day. The final judgment of the world, the completion of our redemption, and the climax of all history, the final judgment of the world. Peter writes, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The picture here is of the final judgments of the world. Looking back to a world of sin is insane, because that world is going to be destroyed in the heat on the day when Jesus Christ returns. And my own view is not that this world is going to be renewed. This world will be destroyed, and a new earth and a new heaven will be created. 
But all sin and all corruption and all decay, all wickedness, all evil will be burned up on that great and wonderful day. And therefore, all those who have sided with evil, who have refused the forgiveness of sin, who've said no to the grace of Jesus in His saving death and blood at Calvary, caught up in that evil, will be overturned in that evil at the day when Jesus returns. The heavens will be rolled up like a scroll as the God of holiness, having allowed rebellion for so long, will allow rebellion for no more. And those who are not forgiven will be banished to everlasting destruction in the everlasting torments of the place that Jesus with tears in His eyes describes as hell. May I plead with you to ensure that you do not go to that place because through the saving death of Jesus, forgiveness and amnesty is ours if only we'll turn to His grace and mercy and love. The final judgment of the world. Second, the completion of our redemption. Because in verse 13, Peter writes, according to his promise, we're looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This picks up on the great promise in Isaiah 65. As God says, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Be glad and rejoice in what I will create. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. And the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw with the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is going to be a physical place of perfect perfection. There'll be no hearsts in the new creation because there will be no more death. There'll be no hospitals in the new creation because there will be no more sickness. There'll be no more handkerchiefs because there will be no more sadness. There will be no more sin, no more sadness, no more suffering. It will be a physical place of perfection and beauty in which we will occupy it with perfect physical bodies, perfectly reflecting the perfect character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything will only ever be good all of the time, and we ache for it, and we can't wait for it. So we pray Maranatha, we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, come Lord Jesus, and therefore the question is inevitable, why are we still waiting? Actually, the answer comes in verse 8. Don't allow this one thing to escape you. With the Lord, a thousand day, years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about keeping His promise, but He's patient, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So why hasn't Jesus returned yet? 
Why have we been waiting for 2,000 years for this to happen? Where is Jesus? And the answer is that in the astonishing love of God, He puts up with a world that hates Him and rejects Him, that mocks Him and despises Him, so as to give as many people as possible, as much of a chance as possible, to turn back to Him and to be saved before it's too late. Here is the love of God. Here is the love of God for us, that He puts up with a world that hates Him to give as many people as possible, as much of a chance as possible to turn to Him and be saved before it is too late. And therefore, there are only two purposes in life. The first is repentance, and the second is mission. The reason Jesus has not returned is to give as many people as possible, as much of a chance as possible, to turn back to Him before it's too late. And therefore, as we live in the gap between the cross and His coming, what is there to do but to grow in godliness in our own repentance and to proclaim the gospel to the whole of the world? Verse 11 since these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be but in holiness and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God in which the heavens will be destroyed? The great reformer William Wilberforce once said this, I do not think there has been a single hour of my life not affected by the thoughts of Jesus' return. And a book was published somewhere between 413 and 426 AD. The author was Augustine, and the book was called The City of God. It is actually one of the most influential works of the Middle Ages, and an extraordinary description of all that we've thought about today the city of God. He was living in ancient Rome, the imperial city of pride. And what Augustine saw was actually in the storyline of the Bibles, there are two cities, the city of man and the city of gods. All cities are proud places. I used to live in London, uh, Philadelphia, uh, Rome, New York. They are places of pride man's glory. And the fundamental choice of life is which city are we living for? The city of man, our sin and reputation and pride, all of which will be destroyed at the end of the age, or the city of God's. And Augustine came to see that what he had to do is what we all have to do as we move our focus from the city that will be destroyed to the new city as we are carried from that affection to a love for the next world. For as I finish, we live between the two appearings. He has appeared to save us. He's given us His Spirit because He loves you, and He has died for you at Calvary. And in the light of that first appearing, be sure that when He returns, you're going home to glory, to the great city of God's. And if that's our future, the city of God, we turn our backs to the city of destruction, like Christian, 
in Pilgrim's Progress, and we fix our eyes on the heavenly Jerusalem to the city of our eternal God, and we praise Him as we bow our heads and pray. So, Father, we worship You and we adore You that in Your mercy and grace, You have visited us with great humility and salvation now to prepare us for the great day of your return. As we await that great and terrible day, we ask you to enable us to grow in godliness and to be urgent in mission. As we praise you that we have the full forgiveness of sin and your righteousness, fill us with joy and hope, we pray, and give us courage and confidence because we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.